that you find your place, and we will begin reading in Acts chapter 13, verse 13, and go through verse 41, excuse me. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem, but they went from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. And after reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterance of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us by their children by raising Jesus. That is also written in the second psalm. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known unto you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, and be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. Let's pray. We thank you, O Father, heaven and earth, that you have hidden these truths about the kingdom of heaven from the wise and prudent and revealed them unto babes, for so it seemed good in your sight, Father. 
Thank you, Father, that this morning as we look at this passage, we know that in a Christian faith, we are not asked to step out into a vacuum or upon nothing as we believe in Christ, but we have the sure foundation and bedrock of the evidences we read of in the scriptures that... uh, it was, it was not done in a corner, Father. It was seen of infallible witnesses, many infallible proofs, many contemporaries of Jesus. And we thank you we can take that uh, assurance into our hearts this morning as we hear this passage. And Father, as your word says, to whom much is given, much is required. Just as the Jews who weren't believing had no more cover for their sin, had no more place to hide when the truth was revealed to them, neither do we. So God, I pray that we take this truth that's shared this morning, God, take it to heart, Father, let it find lodging in our hearts, God. Let it be engrafted into our souls. And, Father, let it bring forth fruit under righteousness. And we'll give you praise and thanks for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Brother Bobby. Appreciate your help, man. <laughs> Amen. I appreciate Brother Bobby doing that. Uh, and uh, another church I served, we had a lot of young guys, and some of them are in ministry today preaching, but... Uh, of course, God had called them, and they were sitting there, and I was preaching every week, and they used to come to me and say, man, if you ever get tired up there, you know, just call in a left-hander. We'll come on up to the bullpen and help you out. So I uh, thank Brother Bobby for coming and doing that for me today. And, and reading that uh, also gave you some relief for me for a little bit. Uh, the sermon's a little long today, but if you went to see the last Avengers movie that came out, don't complain, because that's three hours. Um, so just saying, um, I'm glad y'all are here. It is good to be here. In case you are a guest and you've never seen me before, my name is Stuart. I'm the lead pastor here, and you've seen other pastors up here, but I'm, I'm the guy who usually preaches uh, on Sundays. This passage uh, is, is, uh, is, is a great passage. I've preached through Acts before, and the last time I did it, it took me three years. I'm trying not to repeat that, I'm trying to get through it a little faster than that. But, uh, but it's so difficult because a lot of them are long passages like this. This was an entire sermon. It's only one of, I think, I think it's only two sermons of Paul that are ever have been printed in the Bible. Uh, and this one is, is a little bit short, it seems. Uh, and so some people think that Luke just kind of edited it out. But I don't believe so, and I'll show you why later. But basically, he was asked to give a brief word. And a brief word to a pastor means something totally different than what you hear when you hear that word, brief. But... Um, uh, but, but it's an entire sermon. In fact, you know, as, as Bobby was reading that, it's almost like, well, amen, let's go home, because there was the sermon. Paul preaches that sermon right there in Acts. But what we see is a, is a form, and I want you to catch some of this. I started to say, Acts is full of these big stories that take a lot of verses to talk about. But each verse in that story, each little part of that, just touches so many things. It's, it's difficult to edit out all the stuff I would like to say. If this were a Bible study, it would take us about 10 years because it's so much there. But, but, uh, but as, as Paul sets up a form of preaching here that he follows the rest of his life, and it's distinct here and it's distinct in another place by the audience. Here he's talking to Jewish people in a synagogue. A synagogue was a, a man-made uh, uh, formation that the Jews, in, in, um, when they were dispersed and carried away, they would get together, and if they had ten Jewish males, they would form a synagogue, because in their uh, system, you could only worship in Jerusalem at the temple, and the temple's been destroyed, and they've got nothing. So they started these little local groups, they called it a synagogue, and the Jewish people would gather on the Sabbath, they'd read the Bible, they'd talk about it, and uh, they'd go away. If you had a guest rabbi like Paul, then you would ask him to say something. That just is kind of how... 
it would work. So I'm giving you that outline, but Paul's speaking to Hebrew people. So he tells them in the beginning of all this a history of the Jews. Now they knew what the history of the Jews was, but he has a purpose for that, and I'll show you when we come to it. Later, Paul is talking to Greek philosophers, and guess what? He doesn't even mention the Jewish history. He starts talking to them about their religion, and he points to Christ. Paul always points to Christ. Had an older pastor tell me, and I heard it from many older pastors when I was younger, and now I tell it to other people, uh, when you don't know what to do or what to preach on, pick a text and head to the cross. Everything in the Bible points to Jesus. Do you know that? The creation story, all the Old Testament stories, they're all pointing at Jesus. Everything in the Bible is pointing a finger at Jesus so that he is the focal point of history. And so the sermon today is Jesus is the one. I mean, there is no other. A lot of times when you say, you know, we say Jesus first, that means there's a second. Jesus is all by himself. There is no God but him. He never comes next. He is the one. So Paul proclaims Christ. And so here's what I want you to take home with you today, uh, all together. Pop that up there. Thank you. All history flows through Jesus. The Bible lets us know in Colossians that Jesus thought of creation, he did creation, and he holds creation together. Everything in history and in the universe is all about Christ, and all history flows through him. And that's sort of what Paul is doing here. He's getting these Jewish people to see this flow of history leading to Christ. Because they didn't understand it when Christ came. They misunderstood it. They, they reacted wrongly, but in reacting wrongly, as God does sometimes, he had his will fulfilled through that. And I'll, I'll show you what he means. And now Paul's trying to get on to see. Listen, they made a mistake. Here's the truth that you need to see. And the mistake they made is they rejected him as Messiah and put him to death. But that was actually the will of God, the Bible tells us that he would be put to death. And so we'll look at that a little bit as we go. And as I said, there's a lot here. It was a long passage. It is a long passage. And we're not going to be able to go into detail very much on, on all of it, but some of it, hopefully some. So the first thing is, is a preamble. It sort of leads us into it that you need to kind of get yourself located before we look at the sermon. And that starts in verse 13, uh, where Paul and his companions, uh, we can just stop right there. The story just before this is when they get to uh, uh, the, uh, I'll send the name left me, but um, where was it? Uh, start with a P, uh, Paphos. The, at Paphos, they run into this de demonized man. This, they call him a magician. That could just mean a wise man. He's a Jewish guy. And what he's doing is the Roman proconsul, he is, he's speaking lies into his ears because the Roman Rulers like to have a seer, is what they would call him, an S-E-E-R, not an S-E-A-R, an S-E-E-R. Seer, S-E-A-R, is a store. This is a, somebody that is supposed to be, that was supposed to be funny. Somebody, uh, this is supposed to be somebody's all mystical and in touch with the spirit world and can predict things and all that. Anything like that is demonic, by the way, uh, just so you understand that. Uh, not that the spirit world uh, is only demonic, but anybody that thinks they have special knowledge and can tell the future, talk to the dead. All that is demonic. That's of the devil, uh, our enemy. The, God has revealed his truth to us, and his spirit works in us to understand his truth. And his truth is recorded in the Bible. Somebody stands up and says they believe something that doesn't agree with this Bible is not being led by the Holy Spirit. Okay, good. Amen. I'm not going to go into depth there because that's a soapbox, and I'd take off and never come back. So what just happened is they run into this, this magician, and up to that point, it's been Barnabas 
and Saul. Saul's name gets changed to Paul just before this story as, as the name he uses. Like, I have, my name is, uh, my middle name is Stuart. Now everybody knows me as Stuart, Pastor Stuart. But my first name is Randolph, okay? And so, in some places, people call me Randolph. It, and the, it back in the day, when somebody called and said, is Randolph home? I knew it was a sales call, and they had seen my legal name and knew, didn't know me from Adam's house cat. So Randolph was not available. Stuart was there, but Randolph wasn't available. But uh, so th- that sort of Saul, his, his Hebrew name is Saul, but his Roman name, because he's a Roman citizen by birth, is Paul. And so all of a sudden he starts using Paul. Why? Because now he's going to the Gentiles to preach. But here's how he did it. He'd start in the synagogue. And everywhere he went, that's how he started. Because these were religious people who believed in Yahweh. And he would start talking about what God had done, who had brought us the Messiah in Christ. And that Jesus is the Messiah and they need to believe. And some people would believe and the rest of them want to kill him. So he'd take the people who believe and he'd start a church and they'd go from there. So that's kind of the background. But it opens up in this passage with Paul and his companions. Up to now, it's been Barnabas and Saul, but you got to understand who Barnabas is, because it's going to also, I think, be important later. And that is, Barnabas is the son of encouragement. That was a nickname. That wasn't his actual name. His actual name is Joseph, but he's the son of encouragement, and that nickname stuck, because he was such a nice guy. When Saul comes to salvation in Christ, he comes to the church, and they went, no. He ain't coming in here because all he's been doing is trying to kill us all. They didn't want to accept it. The only way I can think of it, even though it's a little dated because the dude is dead, but it'd be like if Osama bin Laden showed up at church and said, hey, I got saved and I want to come to your church. We'd go, no, I don't think so, Tim. You ain't coming in here. You know, we just wouldn't let him in. But Barnabas is the guy, and I think of Pastor Todd when I think of Barnabas, who goes up to him and puts his arm around and goes, hey, guys, 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 guys. No, I've talked to this guy. His conversion is legitimate. And he's the guy that, well, Todd, if you got your arm around him, okay, you can bring him in. And, and Barnabas gets Saul into the church. Okay? And then later, Barnabas goes and gets Saul and brings him down to Antioch to help teach this church. And from the time Saul got saved to today is about 14 years. I don't know exactly, but around that time period. So Saul has been learning and growing all this time, and Barnabas is that encourager. And, of course, he's going to lead the team because he's the guy that's always leading everybody until they run into this magician. And for whatever reason, the Spirit of God rises up in Saul, and he becomes Paul, and he points his finger in that magician's face and shuts him up and uh, predicts he'll be blinded, and he was. And then the proconsul, the Roman ruler, believes And the next thing it says, so Paul and his companions. Wait a minute, you're saying Barnabas is demoted? No, not at all. But God shifts something here because his will was through Paul to do what Paul did, right? And when I read that, this isn't in the scripture. I can't prove this. But I just, I I, want to talk to Barnabas when I get to heaven. There's a lot of people I want to talk to, but he's one of them. Because in my mind, and it's only in my mind, it's not the scripture. I, I want to be careful to say that. But they had a discussion about it. I don't think Paul stood up and went, hey, take a back seat, man. I, obviously, I'm in charge now. I don't think that happened at all. I think Barnabas probably went to, to Paul and said, Paul, listen. I think the Spirit's telling us that you need to be leading this thing. So I will support you. I'll help you. I'll be right here with you. 
right? Isn't that the kind of person Barnabas is? He has helped him and encouraged him, and he has trained him to this point. And now he sees, whoa, he's grown up. He's, God's got him now. And Barnabas goes, Paul, I'll, just, I'll come along with you, buddy, but I'll, I'll, I'll be your backup. You're the guy. You start telling us what to do. You start leading us out. So there's this turning point right there at verse 13 where Barnabas and his companions, uh, wow, go out. God does not demote Barnabas because there is no demotion in the kingdom of God. When you serve your purpose, you've done what God made you to do, no matter what that purpose is, right? And there's no shame or dishonor in doing what God called you to do, no matter what it is. Isn't that right? Amen. I mean, Noah preached 300 years, and the only people believed him was his three boys. Right? So, is that an embarrassment? No. Because he did what God told him to do, built an ark and saved his family. Right? Okay. So, just, just pointing that out. I, I, to me, that's a big thing. And it's, so, they set sail from Paphos. They come to Perga, Pamphylia, all these things we can barely pronounce. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Now, I want to point something out about that, too. And that is, all we know is, there's a young man named John Mark who went with them. And after this event with the magician, they go this way, and John Mark says, I'm going home to Mama. And he turns and goes back to Jerusalem. The only other hint we have is the next time they go on a missions trip, Paul says, hey, we need to go visit those churches we started, Barnabas. Let's go make sure how they're doing in the faith. Barnabas says, great, we'll do that. John, come on. And Paul goes, "Uh uh-uh, I don't want John with us. So what do you mean? He said, no, he's not coming. And Barnabas says, come on, Paul, because he's the guy of encouragement, right? It's okay. I know he left earlier, but we don't know exactly what went on. But Paul says, I'll tell you what, I'll take Silas, you take John Mark. Let's split and split. So now the mission force has doubled, even though Paul probably had a bad attitude right there. Because later in Timothy, when Paul's in a Roman prison, Paul writes and says, bring John Mark with you because he is profitable to me in ministry. So somewhere in there, they got the thing reconciled and restored, right? Do you know why we don't know why John Mark left? Because Luke didn't tell us. And why didn't Luke tell us? Because he's not a gossip. What good would it do us to know why John Mark went home? Obviously, probably, it was some failure we would think of in his character or whatever, where like he got scared, he was like, I can't handle it. It would look bad on him. And so Luke doesn't tell us. He just says, so he went home and keeps going. I think one of the things that destroys churches the most is gossip. So it's not gossip, it was true. <laughs> just because it's true doesn't mean you got to say it, especially if it's none of your business. Right? Sorry, I'm kimboing my arm at you there. I just realized what I was doing. So John Mark walks away, and Luke doesn't tell us why. Many of you have been in church a long time, in this church. But if you're a new member, you remember in the new members class, and for those of you who have never taken that new members class because you've been here a while, we present a covenant that says, I will protect the unity of my church by refusing to gossip. I think gossip's one of those Baptist sins. In Galatians 5, there's all these sins, you know, 
uh, wrong kind of religion, you know, going off into cults and the occult. There's, uh, there's sexual sins. There's, there's overeating and overdrinking in there. And there's all this kind of sin. But in the middle is this list of bad attitudes. And for some reason, Baptists don't think that's as bad as doing those other things. You know? Oh, we'll fight and fuss and complain and all the stuff. And he says, and people that do this and stuff like that shall not inherit the kingdom of God. That kind of bad attitude is a sign that you're not walking in the spirit. So Luke just doesn't say it. Luke just says, and John Mark went back to Jerusalem and we went on. That's all he says. He just lets it ride. So to me, that's important. Then they come to a new Antioch. They left Antioch. Antioch's church sent them out. So when it says Antioch, it's not the one they left. It's a different one in a different place, a different city. And then I would point out in verse 15, after the reading of the scripture, they said to Barnabas and Paul, hey, if you want to say anything, now's your chance. Paul had sat at the feet of Gamaliel. I mean, that was the primo teacher in his day. And Paul was a rabbi highly, highly respected among the Jewish religion because he knew so much but he's been off the scene for about 14 years as I said and but they knew that he was a disciple of Gamaliel and he was a one of his star pupils and they said hey you want to explain this to us and Paul says sure (laughs) and gets up and takes off so he's invited to speak he doesn't just bust in and start talking he sits there they read it uh, and and as a pastor I I can tell you I I love to hear you guys teach Sunday school teachers all that sometimes I walk in people get nervous don't be nervous man you you bless me uh, you, you encourage me. Last week, I visited a ladies' class, and the teacher was amazing, and it blessed my heart. You couldn't believe how much. It was awesome. But I will confess, I sit there going, hmm, if I was saying that, I'd say it this way. <laughs> Paul, I'm sure, was sitting there going, uh-huh, 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 and they go, hey, you want to speak? Yeah, I sure do. I think that outline's in his head. He's ready to go. And he gets up and he starts talking. So we come to the sermon, and, and, and I've got to do this in broad terms. He gives them a quick history, all right? I, I call this, he sets up the plan. God sets up the plan. It's an abbreviated history of Israel. In verse uh, 16, Paul says, stood up, motion with his hands, said, men of Israel and you who fear God. Men of Israel are Jews. Those who fear God are proselytes. Those are Jewish people. I mean, Gentile people who became Jews, okay? They, they adopted the Jewish religion, but they're not Jew by nature uh, or by physical birth. Uh, they are Jew by belief. And so God says that the plan, he, he introduced it. And then verse 17, he just starts a brief history of Israel. And he covers over 450 years, like, quickly. But there's a couple of things I want to pull out. One is this. Uh, first of all, he says they were protected in Egypt, verse 17. Um, he says, The God of this people Israel, whom our fa- uh, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt, and with uplifted army led them out of it. So he, he, he doesn't even start Abraham. Abraham had a son. That son had a son. That son had 12 sons. They get carried off. To, they go down to Egypt and are protected there for about 300 years. And uh, they grow from a clan into a nation of over a million people. And then, then, he says, and then with an uplifted army, let them out of it. So he covers hundreds of years in a sentence, okay? And, and, and so Egypt protected Israel politically so they could grow into numbers big enough to become a nation. Then, look at verse 18. And for 40 years, God put up with them in the, in the desert, in the wilderness, but I just love the way this, the ESV phrased that. I, I'm not sure. I think King James says something like he endured them or, or something like that. But verse 18, 
And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. So I, I, since it said it that way, I needed to look up with that original Greek. You know, the Greek's original language of the New Testament. So I needed to see how did, what does that word actually mean. And that word actually means he put up with them. All right? It means exactly that. Like, man, these people were a pain, but God put up with them. All right? In fact, a couple of times there, God says to Moses, Hey, Mo, just get out of the way. I'll kill them all and start over with you. And Moses said, no, Lord, these are your people, and you, it would be an embarrassment to you if everybody could look and say the God of Israel failed them, that could, he couldn't sustain them, he couldn't rescue them, he couldn't save them. Moses had the right attitude. And I don't know if that was a test or a teaching for Moses or God would have actually done it, I, I don't know. Uh, but, but that's what happened. And, and so he put up with them. The question becomes, what about me or this body of believers does God have to put up with you ever thought about that where are we not obeying God in a way that pleases him that he can take joy in his children and so it would be said of us so I put up with them for about 20 years and good friend let me just tell you you get one life and then you die and you'll see that later in this passage that's all you got you better be doing what God wants you to do now because you don't know when time will come to an end. Well, God let them out. He put up with them for about 40 years. And then he takes them into the promised land, 19 and 20. And after destroying seven nations, the land of Canaan, he gave them the land as an inheritance. All this took 450 years. Again, he covers centuries, just tons of time with a couple of little sentences. And then he says, and then he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. So, that's the book of Judges. You can read all about that. I just finished reading book of Judges uh, this morning. Uh, and interestingly, it stops with a story that I just don't understand. And it was about the Benjamites. They messed up. And all the rest of Israel rose up and went. And they made a vow. Said, we won't give them any of our wa- uh, daughters to be their wives. And we're going to go kill them all. So they go down there and kill all the children. They kill all the women. They kill most of the men. And there was a few men left. And they went, oh, what have we done? A tribe has now disappeared from Israel because they don't have any kids and they don't have any wives because we said we weren't going to give them any of our girls. So how are they going to even have babies and reproduce? And this tribe's going to go away. So they started a survey. Hey, anybody didn't show up to the meeting? You know how somebody always doesn't show up to the meeting? Well, they found this one town that didn't show up to the meeting and says, hey, since y'all didn't vow that, would you give your daughters to these guys? So they found... 400 women that could be wives gave them to the tribe of Benjamin so that they could reproduce and the tribe wouldn't be lost. And then they said, well, that's not quite enough. So they go to the Benjamites and say, listen, guys, that town over there, they're going to have this festival. And when the young girls come out, you know, the virgins, not young girls, but the young women who are not married, when they come out and they dance, go steal them. And we'll get between you and them and say, hey, 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 man, they're out of wives. Let them have them. And you're not breaking your vow because they stole them from you. Hint, hint, hint. Okay? You didn't give them to them. You just let them steal them. So, so that's what they did. And I'm going, why is that story in there? And then I realized the first king, which he says next, and after the judges gave him a king, Saul was a Benjamite. The New Testament Saul said, I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews of the tribe of Benjamin. And the Old Testament Saul started good and ended bad. And the New Testament Saul started bad and ended good. 
I don't know if there's more link in that, because I didn't think about that till this morning. <laughs> and so I didn't have time to look it up. But it is interesting to me. He gave them the land. He gave them judges. Then he gave them a king. And then verse 22, gave them an even better king, because the first one was kind of punky. And God wanted it to come through Judah anyhow. And so verse 22, and when he had removed him, talking about King Saul, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. And God makes some promises to David. He says, you're going to be a king. I'm going to set up your family, and there will always be a king of Israel out of your line. David, your line is going to be the king, and it will go on forever. And so we come to the New Testament and Matthew and Luke. There are two genealogies of Christ and they take different routes. One goes through his mom Mary. One goes through his earthly dad Joseph. Legally through Joseph, Jesus ought to be king. Physically through Mary, he is a descendant of David. And not only was Jesus should have been on the throne, but when he died, he got back up and has not died since. So the last king of Israel is still alive. And his name is Jesus. And we are his heirs. And we are joint heirs with Christ. Not we get part of it. We are joint heirs. We get what Jesus gets. So we are rulers of God's kingdom. There's coming a time when Jesus will set up a physical reign. And this is where the Jewish people messed up. They thought the Messiah would come and give a physical reign. And I'll say more about that in a minute. But it's a spiritual kingdom. And he says, you are kings and priests. You, 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 you reign in this spiritual kingdom. And one day in the millennium, we will judge angels. We will judge, we'll be reigning with Christ. It's crazy. But that's how much God loves us. But he gave them a better king in David. And then he jumps all the way to John the Baptist. He skips over the, the uh, being overtaken by Babylon, all the bad kings, the hundreds of years of silence. And in fact, at the end of Malachi, God quits speaking and the prophets go quiet. And there's no prophet for 300 years. And then John the Baptist is the last Old Testament prophet. And he stands up and the first prophetic utterance he made was, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He is in the spirit of Elijah preparing the way of the Lord. He prepares a way for Jesus. By the way, he's Jesus' cousin, six months older. So for six months, he's saying, get ready, get ready, get ready. He's coming. And here, uh, Paul preaches it. Luke records it for us. And he says, before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I'm not he, no. But behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I'm not worthy to untie. Back up there in verse 23, he says, Of this man, talking about David, of his offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Now, when he uses that word Savior, remember he's speaking to a, Jew, a Jewish audience. What do they hear when they hear that word Savior? They hear deliverance from political oppression, deliverance from Rome. He's going to knock over Rome. Even his disciples don't get it. They don't get it in the Garden of Gethsemane. I, I got to play Peter this year at the Easter play, if you weren't here, for the Passion play. And I always want to bring down my claymore and cut somebody's ear off, but nobody would willing to let me do that, so I wasn't able to do that. So, but even in the Garden, they go to rest Jesus, and Peter, man, oh no, uh-uh, man, the kingdom's coming, and then tries to go to war, and God, Jesus says, no, dude, you don't even get it. Quit. Put that away. Picks up the guy's ear and fixes it back on his head and heals him. 
right there in the garden. You imagine that? He knows he's going to the cross and he takes time to fix the guy's ear. Kind of sounds weird, doesn't it? Except that's Jesus, right? Say, well, they got it after that. No, <laughs> they're on the Mount of, of, of Olives just before Jesus goes into heaven. And what do they say? Are you going to restore the kingdom now? They're still looking for that political leader. And Jesus goes, hang out for 10 days and then you'll understand. The Holy Spirit's going to come and you'll get it then. And sure enough, when the Holy Spirit came, they got, oh, it's not a political kingdom, it's a spiritual kingdom. You see, today in America, we, 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 we kind of don't get this because we're free to worship God as we please. And we're, we're basically free as, as human beings. And we don't understand necessarily this kind of political oppression. But they'd been living in that for hundreds and hundreds of years. And they're tired of it. And they're looking for someone to deliver them from. And I'm afraid that in the church, because whenever we see a shaking in our society, and we're seeing that today even, we start looking for a political solution. Now listen, I believe as a believer, because we're free and God's given us the most unusual country that's ever existed on the face of the earth, I think we ought to be involved in politics, and I think we ought to make good political choices. But God's not a Republican or a Democrat or an Independent or a Green Party or a Communist or a Socialist. He's God all by himself. I love when Joshua was trying to figure out how are we going to take Jericho. And he looks up and he sees a guy standing there with a sword out. He jumps up, whips out his sword and says, are you for us or for our enemy? He said, neither. I'm captain of God's armies. Take off your shoes, boy. Where are you standing holy ground? That's Jesus talking. He's not for the Baptists or for the Presbyterians or against us. He is God, and we follow his feet and follow him. Amen. And the Jewish people didn't get that. And so Paul's trying to bring them to that point and says, He sent the Messiah. His name is Jesus. And then in verse 23, he gets into the meat of that. In verse 23, he says, Of this man's offspring, God's brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. It's a spiritual Savior. Ultimately, there's going to be a physical kingdom, I told you. See, Jesus went away, ascended into heaven, and he's gone. And the angel said, why are you standing here looking? He's coming back the same way he went up. He's going to come down out of those clouds, out of the sky. And we turn to Revelation, and we see Jesus coming, and he's on a war horse. It's a big old white war horse with king of kings across his chest and lord of lords down his thigh. And a sword in his hand. And he will judge the nations and he'll set up a kingdom for a thousand years on this planet. That's why we know we don't have ten years and then cows are going to destroy the world. That's sign language for crazy. This earth will be here when Jesus comes back. And he'll set up a kingdom on this earth. And after a thousand years he'll destroy it make a brand new one. Can you believe that? It's going to be so cool. I can't wait, but we got time. So they're looking for a physical savior. Jesus means it to be spiritual. And, and God is moving. And so we have the testimony of John that, that we've looked at. And then the message of salvation has come. Look at verse 26. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. They're going, really? The salvation has come? Because they're still looking for politics. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him as the Messiah, 
or understand the utterances of the prophets. They didn't get that all those Old Testament prophecies about the coming Messiah wasn't about the conquering king that's coming. It's about the suffering servant that's coming. Isaiah 53, Psalm 22. That the servant of God would suffer and die for his people. And then later would come the physical kingdom. And so, it says, since they didn't understand them, who are read every Sabbath fulfilled those same prophecies by condemning him. They thought Jesus was crazy, so they put him to death. But then he says, but by doing though, though they, they killed him, though they found no guilt in him worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. And there's a glorious butt of the Bible, but God raised him from the dead. Showing that it wasn't a physical kingdom, it was a spiritual kingdom. Some, and, and Jesus raised physically, but it says he rose from the tomb and God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who come up with him from Galilee, Jerusalem. We are witnesses to these people and we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, he fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. Let me tell you, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the linchpin on which Christianity stands. Paul said in Corinthians, if this isn't true, I'm of all men most miserable because this is crazy. We don't want to live this way unless this is true. But it is true and the resurrection is real, the resurrection of Christ. And we have that resurrection knowing that. He is alive and well. Verses 3rd to 37 is all about, is Old Testament after Old Testament after Old Testament scripture about Jesus being alive. But I want you to catch verse 36 here. It says, For David, after he served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. In other words, his body decayed. His body spoiled, right? I would point out that that's everybody's future. All you can do is serve God in your generation and then die. Because that's all you got. And you don't know when that day's coming. We had a reminder of that this week. Our, our, our friend and loved brother, Doug Campbell, Tuesday morning pulled a pool cover off a pool with some help. Sent the other two away. And they walked away, and he grabbed his chest, realized he was having a heart attack, called Sherry. So I called 911, I'm having a heart attack. He was going to get in his truck and go to the Emergent care realized that was a foolish choice, laid down by his truck. When Sherry got there, he's laying beside the driveway and people working on him. They got him to the hospital in 22 minutes from the door to he is fine. That's all it took. But they put it, went up there, put in a stent, got rid of what had happened. And the doctors explained this way, that probably between one artery had between 10 to 20 percent clot of, of cholesterol. That was all. The rest of his arteries were clear and clean. And under that effort, maybe, whatever, that, that cholesterol stuff, that plaque broke. And when it broke, the body sent all the red blood cells it could to that spot and created a clot like that. And it totally clogged that artery. And that's what he felt. And now I've just told you the facts. I, I can't wait till you hear what God showed him through all that. It was awesome what God did. And he's fine today, praise the Lord. Amen. Thank God. But hey, guess what? I'm, I'll be 60 in July, and there's two or three generations behind me out of my generation. Am, am I going to wait till I'm dead 
for a younger generation to rise up and help them serve God in their generation? See, I got I to gotta learn them and then let them, right? Because I'm going to leave them. And I don't want to wait till I leave them for them to go, now what do we do? I want to learn them and let them before I leave them. I know that learning them is not good English, but I like to have it alliterated like that all else. So you'll forgive me, I'm sure. If you didn't understand that, you gotten too high for your raisin, okay? Um, listen, David served God in his generation and died. Jesus served God, died, and rose again. We are his generation. The Christian generation, we are the generation of those who call on the name of God because Jesus died for us. And David, though he died serving his generation, Jesus died, but he rose again to serve every generation that would come. Amen? And so in the last few verses, beginning in verse 38, Paul brings this thing home. And he says to us that salvation is not political. Verses 38 and 39. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that though this man, through this man forgiveness of sin is proclaimed to you, by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything with which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. The reason he uses that word free is that we are free from our sin. I am no longer a slave to sin. I'm a slave to God. I'm a slave to righteousness. And sin's power is broken. The chains have been broken. I'm no longer a slave and I'm a willing slave, a willing servant of the Lord because he put his spirit in me. And he took out my stony heart and gave me a heart of flesh. Amen. And wrote his law in my heart. I can follow him. And we are free, but only in Christ. In verse 40, Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I'm doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. He's quoting an Old Testament prophet there, and here's what he's saying. Jesus died to save you, and if you scoff at that, you perish. You believe that, you have eternal life. That's your only two choices. If you scoff at what God is doing, you hear about, oh, that's too crazy. That's too fantastic. That can't be true. Okay, die and go to hell. You scoff at it. No, no, that's crazy. You're crazy. That Bible's crazy. Okay. Because it does sound fantastic that God would put on flesh and dwell among us and die for our sins and rise again from the dead. Every part of that sounds crazy. But it's true. No matter how crazy it sounds, it's true. And we need Jesus in our life to free us from sin. That's the freedom. And that's why I go to countries on mission trips. Haven't been to one in a while. I need to go. But I go to these, I've been to these other countries where there is political oppression. And people are under... I just read this morning uh, that, that six uh, pastors, I believe it was, in, in Burkina Faso, Africa. I've been there. Captured by Muslims and killed just yesterday or today. I, I know pastors over there. I know missionaries over there. And they're under this oppression. I've never seen people so happy in Jesus. In Thailand, a king, a monarchy. People just smiling, loving the Lord. Because it's not about whether I'm free physically, whether I'm free politically, but whether or not I'm free from myself. Free from my sin. Free from Adam's curse. And so God calls us to do something about that. He calls us to tell people about him. God has a plan. And 
when I say that, I'm reminded that a lot of times people say, well, I don't know enough to be a witness. I've told you before about my childhood best friend. His name is Trey Rhodes. And at 14, he went to a crusade by, with a guy named Bob Harrington. I don't know how he got down there without his parents, but his parents weren't with him for whatever reason. They went the next night. They got saved. But he got saved this particular night. And Bob Harrington gave away these little orange stickers and, and, and so they gave everybody a sticker, and the sticker said, it's fun being saved. That's all it said. Sounds a little crazy, because it is a little crazy. And, uh, and so Trey goes to school the next day wearing this little sticker says, it's fun being saved. He don't know beans from gravy about the Bible. Okay? And this young guy, he went to a private school back then, and a lot of rich kids were in there. It was an Episcopalian school and this Greek boy walks up to him, who is a declared atheist, and points at that and says, what does that mean? And Trey, been saved less than 24 hours, said, I don't know. I just know it's fun being saved. So, of course, his friend, George, starts making fun of him. And made fun of him every day for the next couple of years. But what it did is it drove Trey to study and read the Bible so he could answer his objections. Here's that guy's. This is his biography or his, his bio on Amazon. The Reverend Dr. George J. Gatgunas, Esquire, M.A., M.Div., S.T.M., T.H.M., T.H.D., Ph.D. Whew, he's got more degrees than a thermometer. A Harvard, a Harvard alumnus is a published author, trial attorney, ordained minister, and seminary professor. A member of the Harvard Faculty Club, he formerly served as one of the editors of the Harvard Civil Rights Law Review and the Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy. As an active Harvard alumnus, he serves as the moderator of the Harvard Reading Club. I'm not talking to you, Siri. Go away. I'm sorry. She popped up. Of the, uh, as a Harvard alumnus, he serves as moderator of the Harvard Reading Club of Charleston, South Carolina. He serves at Cummins Seminary as a professor of Hebrew Bible, professor of Greek Septuagint, Greek New Testament, and Greek classics. He's also a South Carolina Supreme Court certified civil court mediator, family court mediator, and civil arbiter. He's the author of a seven-volume series on religion and law. See Logos.com. He's a marathon runner. Uh, he's performed in some plays, and then it comes down and it says, he's also appeared on various news program appearances, including C-SPAN as a religion and law scholar. And as a 14-year-old boy, he pointed at my friend and said, what does that mean? And all my friend could say was, it's fun being saved. I was at Trey's house when we were, at, we were actually out of college, I think. It's hard for me to remember exactly when this happened, but there was a knock on the door. and I walked with Trey to the door to answer it, and he opened it. And all I heard him say was, George? And George said, hey, Trey. He said, come on in. He came in. I said, what's going on? He said, man, I just had to come by and let you know. Every day when I would make fun of you, I knew what you were telling me was true. I just didn't want to believe it. And he started telling what God had done in his life and how he became a Christian. And 
now this guy, where's Trey? Well, he's a connections pastor to church in Charleston because his heart blew up one day and he's struggled since then physically, but this pastor saw something in him. So he's the, does Sunday school in a church right now. And so Trey's a lot like me. You look us up on Google and you're not going to find anything good. <laughs> I, used, I actually had a bad thing on Google one time. My nephew wrote me, said, Uncle Stewart, you know, uh, yeah, 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 it wasn't my fault. This other guy did it, but he blamed me, so I had this bad thing on Google. But what? I didn't need to say that. Yeah, I, I was nowhere near I-11 when that happened, by the way. But I'm just saying, but that 14-year-old kid was willing to say it's fun being saved and being made fun of. Let me tell you something. If you know, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, whoever believed in him, would not prepare to have everlasting life. You know enough to tell somebody about Jesus. So what can you do with all this this week? I know it's late. Maybe you have to go. I understand. But first of all, God has a plan for you. Are you fighting it or embracing it? God has given you a past and a history, just like the Jewish people, to bring you to Jesus. And what are you now doing in your life since Jesus has entered it? Are you embracing his will and doing it to the best of your ability? Because... You only got your generation, then you're going to die. Secondly, grab one promise from God's word this week and hold on to it. There's plenty of them in there. Just start reading them. You'll find them. And just hold on. Live it. Quote it to yourself every day, this promise of God. Okay? Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. That's a command, not a promise. But if he commanded it, it's a promise, right? Because he gives us strength to do it. Have you let the justifications, the last thing, of what Christ did permeate your whole being. Listen, you were lost in sin and you were guilty as guilt can be. And Jesus justified you. He took your penalty so that you could be saved. And so the question is, have you let that influence and, and, and infiltrate and permeate your body? So from the bottom of your feet to the top of your head, from the inside out, you look like Jesus. Because that's why he saved you. He saved you to make you look like him. If not, then let that happen. Start living out God's will for you. Because Jesus came not to deliver us from a government, but to deliver us from our sin. And if Jesus has delivered us from our sin, then all we can do is serve him, right?